I always find it both interesting and also challenging, um, looking at very familiar passages of the Bible, like this one, and also passages where the events are recorded um, elsewhere. I find it quite difficult to, to read it properly, to see what's there, to think of the situation as if I haven't read it before, and to see what this particular writer wants us to see about this event. And as I've read this passage over the last couple of weeks, one of the things that has particularly struck me has been that Matthew cuts to the chase in his account of this miracle, where Mark and Luke record bustling crowds gathering to see Jesus, hole digging escapades to get to Jesus' feet. Well, Matthew cuts straight to the encounter between Jesus, some men, and their paralysed friend in verse 2. And I think that's because Matthew wants us to see not so much the miracles themselves, great as they are, but the statement about them that I think lies at the heart of what happens here. Verse 6, but I want you to know, Jesus says, not just to the teachers of the law in verse 3, but to all who are there watching, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the heart of this passage, I think. But that's why it's here in Matthew's Gospel for us. I want you to know. I want you to be confident. I want you to be certain that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. But that's where we'll get to at the end. Um, we'll unpack that a little bit later, because that's not where we begin. Uh, we begin at a more intimate, a more personal level, uh, with an interaction between just a few men. Uh, Matthew doesn't actually mention crowds vying for the front seat. The, the only characters in this passage are Jesus, uh, this paralyzed man, his friends, and the teachers of the law. Uh, so let's begin with those first two verses. And I think we see in the first two verses that we can take heart in Jesus who forgives our sins. We can take heart in Jesus who forgives our sins. When Jesus saw their faith, Matthew writes in verse 2, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And what a beautiful sentence that is. It warms my soul. Jesus sees this suffering man and his heart is filled with compassion. Take heart, he says to him. Be encouraged. Tin up. Take heart, son a term Matthew generally uses for biological children. Don't worry, kiddo. Hang in there, little guy. Why? Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Hang in there, kiddo. Your sins aren't a problem anymore. You don't need to worry about them. They're dealt with. They're gone. They can't trouble you anymore. 
What a beautiful sentence that must have been to hear. And of course, it really seems really obvious to us that that's what Jesus says. But these words probably wouldn't be what we were expecting to come out of Jesus' mouth if we didn't already know the story, if, if we were reading this gospel for the first time. For surely, given everything we've seen in chapter 8 so far, we'd be expecting words of healing. Take heart, son. Stand up and walk. Take heart, son. You're healed. Surely we'd be expecting words of healing here, not forgiveness. Because after all, just look at what we've seen in chapter 8 so far. We've seen a a leper cleansed in verse 3. We've seen a centurion's servant healed in verse 13. Peter's mother-in-law in in verse 15. Uh, Crowds bringing people to Jesus for him to heal in verse 16. But sin? Well, this hasn't really come up for a while in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, it hasn't explicitly been mentioned that the word sin hasn't directly been used since chapter three, with John the Baptist. So although it might feel very obvious to us what Jesus says in verse two, I think for the first audience, this wouldn't have been what they would have expecting Jesus to say. And perhaps even, there might have been a feeling of disappointment. Jesus doesn't appear to be solving the presenting problem. This man cannot walk. Maybe he can't even use his arms and upper body an extraordinary, life-transforming, never-be-the-same-again, miraculous healing. Surely that's, that's what we're after. Surely that's what this man and his friends have come for. But sin's forgiven? Maybe we feel a sense of anticlimax. Certainly some in the crowds watching might have done. Not much of a show to see here. Perhaps we feel that an opportunity to really bless this man has been missed. Yet isn't Jesus saying that there is something so much better, so much deeper he can do for this man than heal his body? Yes, healing his body would be wonderful. It would be life transforming. But healing his soul that would be eternity transforming. That would change everything forever for this man. Isn't having a new heart worth so much more than having a working body? It's a trivial example, but it makes me think of the child in the shop, desperate to be bought the action figure they see on the shelf in the latest film. The parent says no, because they know they've already got a whole set of everything from that film waiting at home in the cupboard for the child's birthday. Having his body healed, yes, that would be wonderful. But having his soul healed, that would be so much better. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to have that that perspective, to have that that clarity on our priorities. I know I so often um, 
think, feel, act, speak, as if the greatest thing God could do for me would be to, to give me a good night's sleep, or a quiet day at work, or a break from the kids, or a proper holiday. Or for some of us, it might be a body free from pain, a companion, a child. And those things are wonderful. And we know that God loves to give us, his children, good things and to bless us in practical, immediate, material ways. He's not only interested in the super spiritual realm, but God has something so much better to give us than any of those things. Something so much better that he has already given us. And that is forgiveness, if we follow him. And I think the, the Western British culture that we live in doesn't do us any favours when it comes to appreciating that, that God's forgiveness is a significant gift. Because the culture we live in, it doesn't really know what to do with sin. So it pretends it doesn't exist. Sin is reduced to guilty pleasures or classic vices, drink, drugs, or it's just a bit of a joke. Our culture says, don't worry about sin. It's not really a thing. No one worries about that sort of stuff anymore. Just give yourself a break and get on with your life. Okay, that's one solution. That's one way to try to deal with the problem of sin. But wouldn't you like a better one? Wouldn't you like someone to lift up your chin with their finger and say, take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Not give yourself a break, but your sins are forgiven. Not ignored. Not pretended they're of no significance. But forgiven. Dealt with. Surely that's a better solution to our sin than being told that we don't have to think it's a thing. And if we're Christians, that's what Jesus has said to us. He has said, take heart, child. Your sins are forgiven. Does that mean our lives will be easy? Certainly not. Our lives will be full of strife, struggles and difficulties. We'll have struggles right now, each other of us won't even be aware of. We'll struggle to keep our heads straight, our hearts pure. But despite all that, Jesus says that our biggest problem has been dealt with. Our sin has been forgiven. We've seen that we can take heart in Jesus, who forgives our sins. Our second point is that we can marvel at the Son of Man who has authority to forgive our sins. That's verses 3 down to 8. We can marvel at the Son of Man who has authority to forgive our sins. The wonderful words of Jesus to this paralysed man are met with a less than enthusiastic response from some of those looking on. Uh, verse 3. 
At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. We might say all through verses 1 and 2 and feel the joy of it and be ready to uh, skip to verse 8 and move on. But the teachers of the law are not so sure. Jesus' words in verse 2 have set off some alarm bells for them. This is not the sort of thing that an ordinary human being should be saying. Forgiving sins, I mean, that's a God thing to be doing, like creating, sustaining, ruling, reigning. Jeremiah, in chapter 31, verse 34, records God saying, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's not a we. That's not an I and whoever else I appoint. I and whoever else would like to. I will forgive their wickedness, God says. That's pretty clear cut. These teachers of the law, they knew their scriptures. And perhaps in a way that's not so obvious to us, they saw how audacious this claim Jesus was making was. For God and God alone can forgive sins. Just as it is for a magistrate, a jury, a judge alone to determine the outcome in a criminal court case, to decide whether a defendant should go free. It would be impertinent for a police officer, a lawyer, a victim, a family member, a journalist, someone sitting, watching, to try and step in and make that decision. Well, so God alone gets to decide whether sins can be forgiven. And even more so, because God isn't just a neutral judge from the outside. He is the one who has ultimately been sinned against. For someone else to claim to forgive is to claim that they're the one who has ultimately been sinned against. And just as no one else could forgive an unfaithful husband returning to his wife, apart from that wife, so no one else can forgive our sin but for the one our sin is ultimately against the one who created us to live in harmony with him so in a sense there's something right here the teachers of the law that there's something right that they take note of what jesus is saying that they're taken aback by what jesus is saying but sadly, their response comes from a place not of genuine surprise, but from a hard-heartedness. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Jesus sees their intentions behind their question, whether in their body language or through seeing into their hearts, we don't know. And they're not going to be willing to be convinced. And so he offers to prove his ability to forgive. A risky move. Verse 5. Which is easier, he asks, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? He will do what's easier to do but harder to say that somebody's body is healed because it then has to visibly happen before everyone's eyes. 
to prove that he can do what's easy to say, that somebody's forgiven, but much harder to do. Um, and we will not know until Judgment Day whether words of forgiveness have been effective. Why such a dramatic offer of proof? Why not simply dismiss or rebuke these unbelieving teachers of the law, tell them that they're not going to be shown a sign as he did at other points? Why not move on to where his teaching and ministry will be better received? Well, it's that emphatic statement in verse 6 that we saw at the beginning. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know. I want you to be confident. I want you to be certain that I have the authority to do this, says Jesus. There's to be no room for doubt here. They are to see and they are to understand that Jesus has authority to forgive. And that means that Jesus must be God. If he can do what God alone can do, he must, can only be saying that he is God. And so the stakes are high. Verse 6 continues. He said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. You can imagine every eye riveted on that stretcher, lying on the floor. And sure enough, verse 7, the man got up and went home. The miracle was done. Jesus had done what was harder to say, but easier to do in the healing. To prove that he could do what was easy to say, but impossible for anyone who was not God to actually do. To cancel the sin against this man and set him free. And suddenly the small personal miracle of verse 2 erupts. And verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. They marvelled at this Jesus. And the word translated as awe in verse 8 could also be translated marvelled. They were astonished, bowled over, amazed, not just by what Jesus had done, but by what that showed about who he is. They marvelled. And so can we. Brothers and sisters, so can we. We can marvel at the one who looked in every sense like an ordinary man. The one who had no earthly power, no claims in his upbringing, to prestige, to wealth, the one who lived a humble life and earned a humble living and yet is God. We can marvel for what God would choose to become like one of his creatures. What God would get down off his throne and come to the land he had made and be made an infant. What God would endure the humility of being brought up as a child 
having to learn to speak, to walk, to read, to write, to feed, dress, clean himself. What God would bear the scorn of being ignored, derided, accused and killed by the people he had made? Surely only our God would go through that. And so we too can marvel, like this crowd, at this man with such authority. Father, we thank you for what we see in these familiar words of Jesus' compassion and his authority. We thank you that we can take heart because our sins have been forgiven. Help us to marvel at the God who became a man to live and die that we might live. Amen.